today we have a man who refers to himself simply as Meathead. Uh, I, I don't believe his mother named him that, you know, or when she saw him pop out of the womb and said, hey, Meathead. And, uh, and I don't think he got his name from uh, Archie Bunker. Who, you did? That's, hey, Meathead? That yeah, I'll it. Oh, good, good, because I, I, I wondered, can I see what your, what your birth name was? Or? Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> in, in secret, Mr. Sohn knows, but he's not going to tell. Oh. Um, I, my dad started calling me Meathead during the Archie Bunker years, and it just stuck, and when I got in a barbecue, it was a natural. Wow, okay, so it, it was from, from that. Uh, so, uh, Who here has never seen Archie Bunker? But but you're 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 not going to say what your real name is then? No, no. but because uh, it's it's quite a. You, it's a brand. It, you have to protect your brand. Okay, but it's it's I know it's kind of related to the movie industry, but I won't won't no. say no. Oh. oh well, the last name is Goldwyn. Yeah, so. Oh, his last name is Goldwyn, and yeah, it's on the book. <laughs> okay, so so that uh, but isn't there a relation to the Metro Goldwyn Mayor? It's a very distant one. Okay. Our friend Barry Sorkin will tell you all the best pork cooks are Jewish. Yes, and, and, and I'm I'm Jewish and I'm a certified pork eater. So, uh, anyway, uh, Meathead, I, I feel like I'm insulting somebody, but for him it's it's a badge of honor, and you better not call him anything else. Anyway, Meathead is the author of the New York Times bestseller. Meathead, The Science of Great Barbecue and Grilling, and his book has made many best cookbooks of the year, including the Chicago Tribune, uh, Epicurious, well, Leeds Culinaria, and copies of the book are available for sale here. Can, can you hold it up for a second? That beautiful piece there? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a real meaty, uh, meaty <laughs> topic here. Yeah, don't get any barbecue sauce on it. And he, he has made some, well, one of his specialties. Uh, you'll talk about what you made. Yeah. Great. And um, Meathead, I'm sorry, I, it's sorry, hard, is, is, is the uh, former wine critic of the Chicago Tribune and Washington Post. And he's been a lecturer at Le Cordon Bleu in Chicago, Cornell University School of Hotel Administration and Yale, and he lives in Brookfield. He's a ardent supporter of the Culinary Historians of Chicago and a longtime member. And I pardon the, the pun again, I'm on a barbecue roll, but uh, he's gonna give a very meaty talk today. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you, sir. Um, it's great to be here. I've attended numerous meetings in this room. It feels kind of weird to be on this side of the uh, auditorium, but uh, I'm glad to be here. Um, it's my hometown. I live just uh, 12 miles away in Brookfield, and uh, uh, I've been cooking and eating and drinking around here uh, for many years. Um, I, the book is over here. If you want to grab a copy and browse through it, uh, it you just have to pay for it if you're going to take it home. Um, and uh, I've cooked some pastrami today. Um, smoked it yesterday, and it's warming up in the oven there. You might even be able to smell it. Um, so we'll have a little pastrami later, later on. Deb was kind enough to make my uh, favorite uh, mild horsey sauce to go with it. And so uh, uh, pastrami is made from um, brisket. 
And uh, I think it's the ultimate expression of brisket. Now this may be my ethnicity speaking, but um, uh, Texas brisket is, you just take this big old hunk of pectoral muscles from the steer and you smoke it for 12 hours or so, and that's Texas brisket. But if you cure it first with a uh, salt solution and a nitrate, a nitrite uh, preservative, it gets bright pink and it turns into corned beef. And if you put a pr proper pastrami rub on it and smoke it, it turns into pastrami. And uh, if you adhere to my belief that even though it's been cured, it is still a smoked brisket, then it is barbecue. And if you adhere to that theory, then the oldest barbecue joint in America is Katz's Delicatessen in New York City in Lower Manhattan. <laughs> and that really freaks out the guys in Texas. <laughs> um, and I call this recipe close to Katz's pastrami, and it's pretty good, I think. It's, Scott's saying he gets emotional just thinking about Katz's. So I hope you, well, then I'll, I'll, I'll expect an honest appraisal from you. Um, it, it was cooked yesterday, so it's not gonna be as moist as it might have been, but it should be very tasty. And um, uh, so, um, what uh, I thought we would do today is something that my book does, and uh, uh, that uh, the subtitle of the book is called The Science of Great Barbecue and Grilling. And uh, I spend a lot of time, I have a real interest in science, and uh, always have. Uh, so, we delve into what really happens when you cook. And it's, it's interesting that um, there is this new generation of cooks who are really exploring science. So I, I've titled today's presentation uh, Old Husband's Tales, Barbecue Myths That Deserve to Die, uh, with the idea that um, there's a lot of mythology that we've all learned about barbecue. And, and I don't know if you heard my explanation, but uh, Dad gave me the nickname Meathead during the Archie Bunker years. We'd sit and watch Archie Bunker and jab each other in the ribs. I was a college kid. It was the 60s. Um, don't remember much of the 60s. <laughs> uh, other than I, Dad called me Meathead. And I got into barbecue. In fact, actually, he taught me how to grill. Uh, his specialty was flank steak. And uh, it, uh, it just kind of stuck when you got into the Internet. I was an early user of the Internet. I ran the AOL food and drink section for many years. Uh, when AOL was Facebook. Uh, and uh, the book has received a great deal of praise. It did make the New York Times bestseller list and a number of other uh, top cookbooks of the year lists. It's about 400 pages with about 400 photographs. Uh, we cover the science of heat. What is heat? What is fire? What is smoke? Um, well, there's a lot of food science in there. Uh, we talk about the hardware that you use when you cook uh, outside and how that hardware works. There's a big section on techniques. Um, and uh, we do a lot of myth busting. And uh, that's what I thought I would try to focus on a little today. There's also 118 recipes in there from brines uh, uh, all the way on through uh, some desserts and side dishes. The book kind of grew out of our website, amazingribs.com. It is by far the most popular barbecue and grilling website in the world. Uh, if you just Google anything related to barbecue and grilling, you'll likely find us. Uh, so it's, it's been very popular, and uh, that's uh, kind of how the book uh, came to be. 
the website has about a thousand pages with similar content, recipes, technique, buying guides. The big buying guide, if you're in the market for a grill or a smoker, we, here's a job description. I got a guy named Max Good who works for us full time. Max's full time job is testing grills and smokers. That's it. He's just constantly out there cooking, kicking the tires. We even have um, uh, aluminum hamburgers with probes in them so he can tell where the hot spots and stuff are. Um, and we have a team of paid moderators. A lot of websites use volunteers. We pay these guys, so if you've got a question, if you're cooking and something's going wrong, you'll get an answer pretty quickly, usually. Um, I use uh, a number of consultants because I'm not a scientist, although I have a lot of interest in it. My right-hand man, and his name is on the cover, is uh, Professor Greg Blonder of Boston University. Uh, Greg used to be the head of research at Bell Labs. Um, he's a brilliant man, and uh, when we're struggling to figure out things like the barbecue stall, I don't know if you've heard of the stall, but if you're cooking a big slab of meat like brisket or uh, a pork butt and you're cooking at a low temperature, the meat's internal temperature rises nice and steadily until it hits about 150, 160, and then it stops. And if you're a newbie and you're just cooking your first pork butt or your first brisket, you freak out because guests are coming and the meat is not get and you, your target is well past well done. You're going to 203 because that's the temperatures at which the connective tissues, the collagens, the fats all start melting and make it succulent. That's what makes pulled pork and brisket so special. And it's stuck at 150 and you can't get it up past. And we tried to figure out what causes this and determined it's really simple. The meat surface is wet and the heat is evaporating that moisture, just like sweat, and that cools the meat. So it reaches a stasis, an equilibrium, where it's cooling every bit as fast as it's heating until the surface dries out. When the surface dries out, it makes a crust that everybody calls the bark. And it's like jerky. It gets hard and crispy and crunchy and it's really delicious, especially when you've got um, a great spice rub. Um, and once the surface dries out, then it stops cooling and it goes back up to heating. And it can get stuck at the stall for hours. And that freaks guys out. I saw a few of you nodding in the background. If you do pull pork or brisket, you know about the stall. And we were the ones who f figured out what causes it. I used Dr. Antonio Mata of Oklahoma State for uh, meat science. Um, uh, ML Tortorello, Mary Lou Tortorello. Uh, she is with uh, Food and Drug Administration, uh, PhD microbiologist. And she happens to share the bed with me. Um, she's uh, a... <laughs> So uh, you can feel pretty comfortable that if you eat at our house, you will not get sick. <laughs> um, Chef Ryan Udvet is uh, my test kitchen director. He's a uh, uh, Cordon Bleu grad um, and uh, many others. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm very proud the foreword of the book was written by Kenji Lopez-Alt. How many of you know that name? Yeah, if you have not heard of Kenji Lopez-Alt, his book, The Food Lab, is brilliant and I strongly recommend it. I think it's my best cookbook. Um, and he is also, uh, that's a cover of it there. He and I and uh, our godfather, Harold McGee, uh, I don't know how many of you know that name. Uh, yes, you do. Uh, 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 Shirley Coraher, the baker from Atlanta, Alton Brown, Chris Kimball, Kenji, Nathan Mervold, the people at Chef Steps. We're of this weird generation of cooks 
who are really into science. And we want to know why. And it's something that we are learning that you people share, that this is 2017. We're all involved in technology in some fashion. And we don't need a recipe that just says, do this, step one. Do this, step two. Do this. We want to know, why do I do step one? Why do I do step two? What is happening to the meat? What is happening to the asparagus? And so there's this real strong, and I call us the nerdists or the modernist, and, you'll, and it's a movement among, like in, in, in the arts, there were the, uh, uh, the cubists and the fauvists. Uh, in, uh, in, in the culinary arts right now, there is this movement among nerdists. And it, it's created quite a stir. Uh, a lot of the old guard chefs who were taught at culinary schools like this one were taught by people who came through French cooking techniques. They were taught by their elders, who were taught by their elders, and a lot of the new science equipment, techniques, methodologies that we have are busting a lot of the known knowns that aren't factual anymore. And that's kind of some of what we've done with uh, 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 my book. So some of the myths that I wanted to bust today. This is a big one. Thermometers are for sissies. And this is a real guy that, I don't need a thermometer, I can just poke it with my finger. Well, you can't poke it with your finger. First of all, a filet mignon is going to be more tender than a sirloin. So it's going to feel differently. Now, if you work at a steakhouse and you cook filet mignon and sirloin every night 400 times, and it's all from the same farm, then yeah, you can poke it because you know that meat, you know that breed of animal, um, you know your ovens, you know everything. But weekend warriors like us cannot rely on feel. And then they tell you, well, you can tell by poking your hand or the tip of your nose, you know? Um, it's like 1001, 1002, 1003. Come on, this is 2017. Use a thermometer, know what temperature that meat is. Um, there's some, this, there, there's some really good digital thermometers on the market now. If you've got one of those little dial thermometers that you can clip to your shirt pocket, take it out to your driveway and back your car over it. <laughs> it is a piece of junk. First of all, it's, it's, it's called a bimetal thermometer, and also there's usually one in your gas grill. And it's two pieces of metal that expand at different rates, and they are not accurate. In fact, they can be way the heck off. Um, and they take 30 seconds or more to get a reading. Uh, you stab it into a stake, and by the time you get an accurate reading, all the hair on your arm is gone. So get a good digital thermometer. Um, the top of the line is the thermopen. You've seen all the TV chefs are using these. They're 100 bucks. They give you a precise reading in two seconds. My wife is a baker. She uses it for baking. Um, uh, let's take a look at our pastrami here. Stick it in. 114 degrees. Precision within a degree in two seconds. Really, really accurate. If you don't want to spend 100 bucks, the same company that makes that makes the Thermopop, which is 30 bucks, and it takes four seconds. So if you're willing to wait two more seconds, you can save 70 bucks. <laughs> pretty darn accurate, pretty reliable. And if you really want to go crazy, there's gizmos like this which you can actually put the probe in the oven, set this up, put this in your pocket, and go cut the lawn. And then you can say, okay, my, my oven is holding steady at 225, and the meat is up to 114. 
So really nifty, all kinds of cool devices out there. And um, to go with it, I have here a meat temperature guide. Um, and that shows you both what USDA recommends and what chefs recommend. <laughs> and they don't always recommend the same temperature. Um, and it's also got a lot of useful information here. And um, if somebody would come forward and grab these, um, oh, Deb, thank you. And we can just pass these up and down. Everybody's welcome to have one. Really useful tool, really ha a handy guy, uh, magnet. Put that on your uh, fridge door. Um, it's really easy to remember. So, thermometers are not for sissies. Thermometers are the single most important tool outside of your knife kit that you can own as a cook, both indoors or out. You need to know uh, a steak is 130 to 135 is medium rare. At 130 to 135, it is at its optimum tenderness and juiciness. Anything hotter than that, it's the proteins start to shrink, start to squeeze out juices, um, it, and it starts getting tanner and tanner until well done, which is about 150, 155. So your meat temperature is crucial. Uh, last year, Consumer Reports did a research project where they bought 300 chicken breasts from all over the country. They tested them. 90% had pathogenic bacteria. 90% of the chicken breasts in America have pathogenic bacteria. You can kill the, all the bad guys if you cook to 160, 165. So a thermometer is crucial, not just for um, getting the right temperature for texture and flavor, but for safety. You do not want on Father's Day tomorrow to go to the hospital. So thermometer, really crucial tool. Oh, and by the way, they also discovered of that 90%, half of those had um, pathogen, uh, um, uh, um, antibiotic resistant pathogens. Yeah, so you don't want to screw around, you want a thermometer. Um, and uh, the, the, the corollary is the dial thermometer on your grill. It's a dial thermometer, it's, a, it, it's one of those bimetallic thermometers. These are pictures that my readers have sent me, and you can see some of them are off by as much as 100 degrees. The digital thermometers are reading accurately, the dial thermometers are way off. So don't trust that dial on your grill. First of all, it's not accurate, but second of all, it's in your dome. Where's the food? It's down below, it's six inches below. There's a temperature difference, big one. So unless you plan to eat the dome of your grill, put, you want a probe, like this guy, clipped next to the meat. Now you know what temperature the meat is feeling and that's crucial for being accurate. Okay, here's another popular myth. The red juices from a steak or from any meat, or blood, we call it, oh, blood. Every time you call it blood, somewhere in Indiana, a teenage girl becomes a vegan. It is not blood. It is, it is, myoglobin. That is a liquid protein. It's water with a little of this little pink protein in it. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. What color is blood? It's dark red. It's almost black. It's thick. All the blood is removed in the slaughter process. All the blood is removed. This pink juice that comes out of your steak is thin, it's pink, it's watery, and it doesn't coagulate. It's not blood. It's myoglobin. And it really grosses people out. I think, I think that a, lot of, a large reason why people insist on having a well-done steak is because they just don't want to eat blood. 
Well, where do they think it goes? You cook it to 155, it's well done. Do you think it evaporates? They just don't have to see it. I don't know. Um, but it's not blood. Stop calling it blood. It's myoglobin. Just call it juice. Some of my best friends are juice. <laughs> Pink pork is dangerous. Another myth. Um, last year, um, USDA lowered the recommended temperature for pork to 145. All of the charts, a lot of your old cookbooks are going to say 165. Um, a lot of your old cookbooks say 175, 180 for turkey. That's a recipe for cardboard. <laughs> so use this meat chart that we just passed out. And if you've not ever had pork cooked to 140 or 135, you're missing one of the great meats of this world. Go get yourself a pork chop, particularly pork loin. Pork loin and turkey breast are the two biggest pain in the butt out there. They're just no fat. The, uh, you overcook them and they are cardboard. Um, and uh, you just cannot go past uh, the, the optimum temperature. That's why you need a thermometer. Uh, otherwise, they're just inedible. And uh, it, you, if you cook a pork uh, chop to uh, 135 to 140, uh, you're going to have a wonderful new experience. 135 is medium rare for a steak. 135 is medium rare for pork. It's not gross. It's delicious. Myth. All your cookbooks tell you. Cook chicken until the juices run clear. That's false. It may have been true once, but the way they grow chickens today is very different. Chickens go from egg to the grocery store shelf in seven weeks. Seven weeks from zero to three and a half pounds in seven weeks. During that time, the bones don't have time to calcify properly. And bones are where blood is manufactured. So it is not uncommon to see pink bones and pink meat around those bones stained by um, the uh, marrow of those bones. Also, the juices, which are pink from myoglobin, the protein liquid that is pink, um, myoglobin doesn't always turn tan or um, brown at the optimum temperature 160 to 165. So it's, if you cook that chicken until the juices run clear, you're almost certainly gonna badly overcook it. Now, the problem is, is we're really grossed out when you serve pink chicken. Pink pork, most of us will, will eat. Pink pork's wonderful, but pink chicken really freaks people out. My wife, the microbiologist, knows this. If I bring in the chicken at 160, and it, I, I, you know, I got my thermopen, it's been at 160 for a minute. It's safe. It's pasteurized. I know it. I guarantee it. She says, it's pink. It goes in the microwave. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, I mean, it's really hard to overcome that. Thermometer is the only way to tell it's done. Here's another big myth. Cooking times. You see this particularly when it comes to roast. Your Christmas prime rib, they tell you, cook it at you know, 10 minutes per pound or something. Well, those top three roasts all take the same time to cook because it's the thickness that determines the cooking time. You know, the hot air surrounding meat is what cooks the outside of the meat. But the hot air doesn't go inside the meat. The hot air heats up the outside of the meat, 
and the outside of the meat is what heats up the inside of the meat. So the outside of the meat is cooking the inside of the meat, not the hot air. So it's the thickness of the meat that determines how long that heat takes to work its way from the edges to the center. So the thicker the meat, the longer it takes to cook, not the weight of the meat. Now, there often is a correlation between thickness and weight, but take a look at a prime, I mean, you know, it's like a tube, a prime rib roast. A 10 inch long prime rib roast that is four inches thick will cook at the same rate as an eight inch long prime rib roast that is four inches thick. Now the bottom one is only three inches thick and it's four inches long. So it'll cook at a different rate. So it's the thickness of the meat that matters that uh, determines the cooking time. Myth, get your grill screaming hot. This is something guys, you know, I get my grill, crank it all up. Um, we cook way too hot on our grills. Dial it back. Heat is the enemy of moisture. Protein shrinks when it's subjected to heat. Meat fibers shrivel up. When they shrivel up, they squeeze out the juices. When they squeeze out the juices, those juices either drip off, it's called drip loss, or they evaporate. And it's not uncommon to have 20 to 30% loss while you're cooking due to the excess heat. Dial the heat back. Almost everything you cook, you cook on a grill, you should cook with a two-zone system. This is a charcoal grill. You can see on one side, we've got all the coals pushed over to one side. Now, in the Weber books, they usually tell you to push some to one side and some to the other side and leave the center void. That's wrong. Push it all to one side. Get it all over to one side, and then you have the other side that is void. So when you cook directly above those coals, you have infrared radiant heat, really concentrated, really strong energy. Energy is crucial, and there are different kinds of energy when you cook. Direct radiant heat is really potent energy. Another potent form of energy is conduction. The metal rungs on your grill grate are hot and they conduct heat. And that's why you have grill marks. The least potent form of energy is warm air. Air does not conduct heat as effectively as metal. And so if you put your food off to the side where the heat is indirect, where it's warm convection air flowing, it cooks much more gently. Directly over the charcoal, it could be six, 700 degrees, but off to the other side, it might only be two, 250. And that's again, a good reason why you need a thermometer. And on that indirect side, the meat bathed in warm air will cook gently, slowly. Now I say the word meat, but the same holds true for vegetables. So you want to cook almost everything in direct heat, gently, slowly. On a gas grill, if you're shopping for a gas grill, the more burners the better. You can control heat better that way, but if you've got two burners, you're good. One burner on, one burner off. Or two burners on, one burner off. You have to fiddle with it to get the temperature under control, but you want to cook on the indirect side. Almost everything you cook on the indirect side. Myth, searing seals in the juices. This was a myth that was started by 
<coughs> a German scientist in the 1800s, and it's been disproven, and it's really easy to disprove yourself. Here's a couple of pictures of steaks sitting on my grill. You can see the pools of juice on it. They're well seared. Searing does not tie knots in the ends of muscle fibers and seal in the juices. It absolutely has no effect on juice content. In fact, searing, if you do a, a test, Alton Brown did this on one of his TV shows. He cooked one steak, seared it first, and another steak didn't, and weighed them afterwards. And the one that he had seared was actually lighter weight. It had lost more juices. Why? Heat. More heat to sear the meat. Heat is the enemy of moisture. Searing does not seal in juices, but you want to sear. Searing is the turning of the proteins and the amino acids and some of the reducing sugars into a new chemical. And it's called the Maillard reaction, and probably everybody here has heard of it. It's the same thing that happens when you roast um, coffee beans. Um, you get from a bland flavor to a rich, potent flavor. It creates hundreds of new compounds. <clears throat> so searing creates flavor. Searing is good. You want searing, but not to sear in juices to create new flavors. Myth, you want grill marks. We're all Pavlovian trained. When you buy a, um, a frozen chicken dinner, it shows you those beautiful grill marks. You go to a restaurant and they have pictures. It shows you the beautiful grill marks. Well, what are those grill marks? They're made by Maillard reaction. It's that heat chemically altering the proteins and turning them brown, making new flavor. And where does that heat come from? Conduction from the metal grates. But what about the little spaces in between the grill marks? That's unfulfilled potential. <laughs> like a bright child who never went to school. You want your steak to be all brown, all over. There's a steak. That is loaded with Maillard, that's loaded with flavor. So grill marks are actually less desirable than a good, even brown piece of meat. How do you get it? I want to teach you a technique that you may have heard about, but if you haven't, it will change your philosophy of cooking, both indoors and out. Almost all the time we're taught to sear the meat at the beginning of the cooking process because it'll seal in the juices. Well, it doesn't. And then we finish the cooking in the oven or in a crock pot or on the grill. But when you sear at the beginning of the cooking, you're loading up the exterior of the meat with energy. Think of it as a capacitor. You're putting energy into that surface. What happens? It gently works its way down to the center. So when you're done cooking that steak, you've got a beautiful dark brown surface, then a layer of tan, then a layer of pink, and finally in the center you've got a little strip of medium rare beautiful perfect steak. What your goal is, is a beautiful, dark, crisp, crunchy crust like you see in this picture, and even color from edge to edge, 130 to 135 degrees, medium rare, maximum juiciness and tenderness. How do you get there? You gently cook this steak. You start indirect. Now, this applies mostly to thick steaks. 
thin steak's a different story, and we'll talk about those in a minute. Anything under an inch is a thin steak. But a good two-inch ribeye or a T-bone or something like that, um, or this is really important, a chicken breast. You start it indirect, gently warm it, and when it's almost at your target temperature, we're going to take our steak to 130, 135. We're going to cook it indirect and bring it up to about 120, 125. And then we're going to move it from the indirect side over to the hot heat side and sear it at the end of the cook. Pound it with energy. Get that surface dark. When we're doing that, we're going to take the lid off because we don't want to push the energy down to the center. And now here again, fly in the face of everything you've been taught. We put it right over that hot heat, as hot as we can get it, and we're going to let it sit there for a minute or two, and we're going to flip it. And we're going to let it sit there for a minute or two, and we're going to flip it. And we're going to flip, 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 flip. You're going to be a human rotisserie. <laughs> because you do not want that energy building up like a capacitor and pushing down to the center. When you flip it, what happens? The energy that built up from that radiant heat on the underside bleeds off. So you're browning the surface, but you're not cooking the interior. So you flip, 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 and when you're done, you've got a steak that looks like this on the outside and is gorgeous, perfect, even edge to edge, bumper to bumper, medium rare on the inside. Chicken breast, chicken thighs. What's the problem with chicken? Burning the skin. You always, if you're gonna get it safe, you have, you're always at risk of burning the skin. Start it indirect, bring it up to about 140, then move it over to the direct radiant heat side and sear the skin. Get the skin crispy at the end. Get the skin crispy just before you take it off. Now you pull it off, you've got the perfect 160 degrees interior and your skin is crispy and not, not burned. Keep the skin away from radiant heat as much as possible. You'll never burn the skin. But you do it very quickly at the end, okay? Myth, the fat cap melts and penetrates the meat. Exterior fat, surface fat, cannot penetrate meat. Marbling is crucial. Marbling will melt, will, will, will float around on the interior of the meat. But meat is 70% water. It's like a sponge. It's also saturated like a sponge. There's no room in there for the fat to get in, and fat is oil, and oil and water don't mix. So the fat cap on the outside of your pork roast will not get inside. It can't. I mean, this, the photography's crappy here, forgive me, but this is a piece of beef that I just dug a hole in and filled it with olive oil, went away, came back in nine hours. It's all still there. It's not going anywhere, it can't get in. So when you make a marinade, all the oil you put in the marinade, wasted, can't get in. Myth, a bone-in steak is better. Well, how the heck did we get this idea that the bone is, is better? Because bone is made of calcium. You can see here that there's a, a femur in the upper right corner there, and there's a thick layer of calcium. Calcium has no flavor. The marrow has flavor. The marrow is loaded with flavor. So if you put a steak or a, um, beef ribs, short ribs, in a crock pot or in a Dutch oven, 
the water in there will dissolve the marrow and pull it out. And that makes your stew rich and succulent. Because water is a powerful solvent. A lot of people boil ribs. When you boil ribs, what happens? They get very tender, but they also can get mushy. And if you pull them out, you look at what's in the, in, in, in the pot, it's all brown. It's, the water has dissolved a lot of the flavor. And once that flavor gets out, you can't get back in. So if you're going to stew something, cook something in wet environment, the bone is to your advantage. But if you're gonna cook it on a grill or in an oven in warm air, the marrow can't get out. It's trapped inside of calcium and calcium has no flavor. And what happens is, <clears throat> is the calcium also alters the heating properties. Now it may be a little hard to see in that picture to the lower left, but along the edges where the bone is, and you've experienced this if you think about it, you got a bone in ribeye and you're gnawing on it, the old song uh, for, was it Spike Jones, the, the closer to the bone, the sweeter the meat. It's not really sweeter, it just doesn't cook rapidly because the bone is cool. The bone is insulating. The bone prevents the meat from cooking. So you have one side of the steak that's cooked properly and against the bone, it's cool and it's not cooked properly. Boneless ribeye will cook evenly on all sides. The bone does not contribute to the flavor. And boy, do I get in arguments with chefs over this one. But it's just a fact. Myth, let meat come to room temperature. You know how long it takes a two inch steak to come to room temperature? Take it out of the fridge, it's 70% water, it's cold, it comes out of the fridge 34 to 38 degrees. It takes two hours for it to even start warming up. A 10 inch roast takes days to come to room temperature, not days, it takes like 10 hours. Besides, and of course that becomes a, micro, a, a nice little microbial soup, but there's an advantage to cooking cold food because smoke sticks to cold food. The same effect as you get out of the shower and your mirror is all fogged up, those little particles of moisture from the air, from the steam, are attracted to cold surfaces. Same thing with smoke. Smoke is gases, some of which are steam, because there's water in wood, and it's little tiny particles. And those little tiny particles and the moisture and the gases stick to cold surfaces. These three beer cans, that we painted them white. The pure white one was the control, it sat on my desk. The one in the middle was empty and went on the smoker and the, right next to it on the smoker, the one was filled with ice water. Look how dark the one is with ice water. The smoke stuck to the cold surface more than to the one that was empty. So if you like smoke flavor, right from the fridge to the cooker. Myth, soak your wood chips. I mean, every barbecue book says you soak your wood chips or your wood chunks. There's a reason they build boats out of wood. It doesn't absorb water. <clears throat> We've done this. You take a handful of wood chips, soak it, and a lot of books just say overnight or for an hour or two. We did it overnight, it gains about 3%. And all of it right on the surface. Okay, so let's say you get a charcoal fire and you get it up to the temp that you want, you want to cook at a certain temp, and you're gonna throw wet wood on the fire, what happens? 
the fire goes down, the temperature goes down, and all that smoke, it's steam. Water boils at 212. It, the steam comes off. Smoke doesn't start happening until almost 600 degrees. The wood doesn't combust till 575. So that's not smoke, you see, it's steam. Now here's what gets cool. The best tasting smoke is invisible. They call it blue smoke. If you ever go to a barbecue competition and you see the top chefs, they're cooking in these big uh, pits called jambos, they're like sofas, um, they're huge. You don't see any smoke coming out of the chimney. It's because they are burning a small, hot fire of dry wood. The wood is flaming, and that's maximum combustion. It kills a lot of the contaminants and the bad flavors. And the smoke that comes out is almost invisible because the particles are so small, you can't see them. When you see white, billowy smoke, it's because the particles are bigger, and you can see them. It tastes good, but the best-tasting smoke is blue smoke, they call it, or invisible smoke. And it comes from not wet wood, dry wood, and not smoldering wood, burning wood. So if you cook with wood chips on your gas grill or your charcoal grill, don't worry when they catch on fire. I get emails all the time, oh, I've, all my wood catches on fire. Good, let it catch on fire. You use more wood, let it catch on fire, let it burn, it's a better-tasting smoke. The photograph on the uh, right is uh, closer to blue smoke. All right, I gotta keep moving here. Uh, um, myth, rubs and marinades penetrate and tender meat, and, and tenderize meat. They, they don't go far. Salt, salt is the magic rock. Salt goes to the center of the meat. Salt penetrates all the way. Salt is sodium and chloride, two little tiny atoms, and when they get on the surface of the meat, they get wet. And they split and they get an electrical charge, it's called ionization, and then they start to penetrate and they can go all the way down to the center. It takes them a little time to get down there, but they can get to the center. But look at the size of the molecules of the other things in your marinade. Allicin, garlic, uh, sugar, glucose. They're huge molecules. They cannot penetrate. They cannot go past the surface. Your marinade is a surface treatment except for the salt. And the way to prove this is, is take a pork loin or something, marinate it overnight, and then cook it and slice it carefully so that the knife doesn't push the flavor down in and taste a center core sample. It tastes like pork. You may get some salt flavor because the salt went down in there, but none of the marinade gets down in there. Now, if you slice it and you pour juices over it, you'll get the flavors, but marinades are a surface treatment just like a rub. They don't go deep into the meat and they don't tenderize either. Now, on a thin piece of meat like a, um, a skirt steak, if it penetrates an eighth of an inch on each side, well, the skirt steak's maybe only half inch. So now it's gone halfway in, eighth inch on each side, quarter inch total, a quarter from a half inch piece of meat. Yes, you're getting significant penetration on a skirt steak, but not on a flank steak, not on a steak. Myth, beer can chicken. This is one, I mean, there's, there've been books written about this. It does not work the way you think it works. What's the temperature you're gonna cook your chicken to? 160, 165, okay? In that range. 
If you take the chicken and stick a beer can up its butt, there is no way that beer can get to 212 degrees and boil. What do you, what's this thing on my beer can here? Huh? Beer koozie, right? See this? With the beer can in it? That's a chicken koozie. This is a 38-degree chicken coming out of your refrigerator, and you stick a beer can in it. And it's going to go up to 160. It is insulating that beer can. The beer can cannot boil. The beer cannot boil. And even if it could, a little bit might come out and get to the area around the shoulders. The can is made of metal. The beer cannot penetrate the can. It cannot flavor anything near the can. If it came out, it might come out and condense a little on the cool meat inside the shoulder. It can't penetrate the meat because the meat is already 70% water. It is fully saturated. There's no place for the beer to go. John Cass thinks he has called me an effing ass you-know-what. <laughs> because I have disproved his favorite way of cooking. Well, John, I'm here to tell you, beer can chicken is wonderful because it's roast chicken. And everybody loves roast chicken. It's just that the beer can has nothing to do with it. And in fact, it's actually hampering and preventing the chicken from reaching its full potential. Because you've now covered the interior of the chicken. And what is the most wonderful flavor in cooking? Brown, the Maillard reaction. You want maximum flavor in your chicken? Break it down. Break it down. Get those breasts and those thighs brown on both sides. And then you can temp each of them because thigh meat actually is best at around 170. I've been saying 160, but thigh meat can go up to 170. Breasts around 160. Thigh meat's got a little more fat, a little more uh, myoglobin, and they can take a little extra heat. That's why this thing is so handy. You can temp it each piece and get it off at the right temp. So you can brown all sides. So when you break down the chicken, A, it cooks faster, less moisture loss, brown on all sides. You can get rub and flavor everywhere. Yes, beer can chicken tastes good, but not as good as it could taste. And the beer has nothing to do with it. Sorry, John. He, 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 he called me, in one of his columns, he called me the chicken troll. <laughs> the chicken troll. Uh, he was on the stage at um, Printer's Row last year, ahead of me, and he saw me in the wings waiting to go on, and he started ranting about beer can chicken, and it was like, dude, I'm going to get the last word. <laughs> I'm after you, <laughs> you know? So as, when he's done, I go up on the stage and I go to shake his hand and he, he, he called me some foul language right to my face. I got a kick out of his column this week. Um, he, he's talking about the meanness in politics and how that infected the shooting in Virginia and how mean people can be. And I'm thinking, John, you're the one that called me the FNA hole. <laughs> because I debunked your beer can chicken? Oh dear. What a world we live in. Uh, well, the empty beer can does hold it up. And it will make, I mean, it does look cool, doesn't it? You know, little Buddha sitting there. But uh, your, your interior is still, your interior is still kind of pale and, and unfulfilled.
No, they, the can's really not going to conduct heat, but there are wire devices that will hold it vertical, and those wire devices actually allow convection. If you're going to use one of those, you want to hollow out the top because it can close up. You want to make a hole here so that you get a chimney effect, and then you can brown the interior. And it is nice serving a whole chicken. Uh, I like to break them down into pieces. Deb was kind enough to make a uh, horseradish sauce from one of my recipes, and she's got these little rye squares, and she's putting a little horseradish sauce, and she's going to start cutting up some pastrami for us shortly. Um, boil ribs for tenderness. Ah, resting. I, I did not include resting in this slideshow. Um, she said uh, that 160 is before resting. I am funding a research project in the meat department at Texas Tech University to look into this question of resting meat. I am not convinced that there is any benefit to resting meat. I don't believe the juices go running away and hide in the center of the meat, and that if you rest the meat for five seconds, or five minutes, or ten minutes, you have a significant less... Now, we've done kitchen research, and there is a little more juice comes out of the meat if you slice it when it's red hot. But it's down to like a tablespoon. It's a very insignificant quantity. And I think most people want hot food served to them. And it, you have something known as the carryover effect when you cook. And I think most of you are sophisticated enough to know what carryover is. You cook a turkey to say 160, and you bring it in, and then you tent it and let it sit on the counter for 30 minutes. Well, what's happening? First of all, the tent is trapping all the steam, and that's making the skin rubber. Second of all, it continues to cook because the exterior is loaded with energy from that warm air. And that energy, some of it comes off into the atmosphere, but much of it goes down into the center. So it continues to cook, and that's called carryover. So the chicken or the turkey or whatever you're cooking will continue to cook when you take it out of the oven or off the uh, grill. When I, these target temperatures on the um, uh, cooking guide are what I think are ideal serving temperatures, but I recommend you bring it right in and serve it. Because the way people eat is they take a bite of the chicken, then they take a bite of the beans, and then they take a bite of the uh, potato, and uh, they have a glass of wine, they have a conversation, then they go back to the chicken again. They don't cut it up in shreds like the research shows, and you lose a little extra juice. So it's resting right there on your plate. So I say get it in and serve it hot, a sizzling steak, a big part of the moisture effect of eating a steak is saliva. Saliva is a lubricant and a moisturizer, and if it's sizzling, you're producing saliva. So I am not an advocate of resting. Now, my good friend Kenji, who wrote the foreword, and I admire him immensely, he advocates for resting. So I just gave, made a grant to Texas Tech, and I said, let's find out what happens inside that meat. Does the juice move away from the surface? When it rests, does it move back to the surface? Are there more juices lost? Let's get these answers. And you, I can't do that in my kitchen. A lot of the research we do here is kitchen research. The question is, is there a difference between hormone-injected chickens and organic chickens? Or I, I, I don't believe they're allowed to give steroids to chickens by law. But let's say steers, for example. The experts say that when the meat reaches market, the hormone levels are no greater than what it, it would be. A lot of people still feel skeezy about it, and I can understand why. 
the, I don't want to take time because um, organic is a topic that we could spend a lot of time on, and I've tried to learn as much as I can about it. Most of the organic manufacturers now are big manufacturing companies. They've bought out the mom and pop guys who were really trying to make food better and who had all of our health and the sustainability of the environment at their hearts. Laws that control what is organic have changed. Uh, for example, um, you can inject pork and turkey with a saline solution and it's considered organic, even if you've injected it. I mean, it's just water and salt, so that's considered natural. But does that, the spirit, I, I'm, I tell you what, I'm gonna pass on any discussion about this right now, because that's hours of conversation, and it's really interesting, and I know a bit about it. Let, 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 we can discuss it maybe afterwards. I have some very, very strong opinions on it. It's not like I, I don't, I, but it, we can have hour-long discussion. I'll tell you my personal, in summary, when I see organic on the label, I see what I believe is a marketing term. I see somebody trying to soak me for more money than um, regular. Now, that's a very broad brush I'm painting with here, but I think that we're moving in that direction now. Air chilling. Yeah, air chilling is, a, is a, I think, a slightly safer. Poultry is really risky. Poultry is easy to contaminate. Um, most poultry is chilled by, um, in a cold water bath, and that cold water bath is often a salmonella soup. Um, if you can chill it in the air, there's less exposure to salmonella, but often they're already exposed to salmonella um, through the other processes. It is a slightly safer technique. Here, here's one rule of thumb. Here's one rule of thumb you can carry everywhere you go. Raw anything is riskier than cooked anything. Cooking, as my wife, the microbiologist for the FDA says, is the kill step. Cooking kills bacteria. Cooking makes food safe. Raw food, any kind of raw food, meats, vegetables, have a higher risk. I'm not saying it's dangerous. Have a higher risk. The riskiest food in the grocery store Anybody want to guess? Pardon? Sushi? Sushi? No. Bean sprouts. Bean sprouts. Bean sprouts. Um, think about it. If you've ever grown, ever grown sprouts at home, you take the seeds, you soak them in water overnight, warm water, perfect environment for bacterial growth. Then you dump out the water and you let them sit in the, at room temp, perfect for bacterial growth. Then you soak them again to give them more water. The same environment that lets the seeds grow into sprouts lets bacteria grow. Uh, whether you're doing it at home or it's done commercially, there's bacteria on seeds. These seeds are growing in the fields, the birds, the rabbits, everything around there. I really want to steer clear of these safety issues because that's a whole deep, complicated topic that a lot of you feel religiously about. And to challenge someone's religion in a very few minutes is very hard to do. Um, so um, beer can chicken is, is a religion. All right, I'm going to skip past a couple of these uh, things. Oh, I got to do this one. Um, roasting pans. I hate roasting pans. Uh, you go out and you buy these really expensive roasting pans. When you put meat in a roasting pan, like a turkey, it's got the walls of the roasting pan 
rising up. All right, so here's our, here's our typical turkey roasting pan, and it's on a V-rack in here. And these walls are blocking the heat from getting in. And often there's water in the bottom. You put water in there to keep the drippings from burning. Or the drippings are down in the bottom. So the water may heat up, if you've got a 325 degree oven, it may get up to 175, 200. It's not going to get to 325 unless you leave it there for many, many hours. So you've got an air temp of about 240 underneath this bird. So the underneath of the bird is exposed to 240 degree wet air. And the top of the bird is 325 dry air. That's why the bottom of your turkey is soggy. That's why the skin on your turkey is tan, pale, and soggy. If you lift it up, put a rack on here, at least you're getting warm air underneath. And now you can brown the bottom, get the skin on that turkey cooked a little better. But better still, if you put it on your grill and hold it up above the drip pan, this is the drip pan, it catches your drippings, that's your gravy. When I cook a turkey, I cook it on the grill, I usually will spatchcock it, which is lay it out butterfly. Above a drip pan, I'll put all of the stuff you need to make a stock in here. Carrots, onions, um, herbs, spices, um, a little white wine. I mean, just doctor this juice up, let it drip down in here, and it's getting warm air all around. It's going to cook faster, it's going to cook evenly, and you're going to make this stock with the drippings. It's absolutely killer. If you want to thicken it with um, uh, flour or cornstarch, you can do it, but I don't need to. And if you don't, it'll actually penetrate the meat better and you get more flavor. So that's the way to cook a turkey and a, uh, a beef roast. Don't put it in a roasting pan, put it above the roasting pan. Myth. Barbecue is for guys. I mean, it is, I mean, there's something about the tools, the toys, the fire that gets us going, right? But we see on our website more and more women using the grill, uh, more and more women getting into it. It's cooking. It's just a different style of cooking. I don't know why it has become, I mean, it's still 80% men that come to my website. I don't know why it's still mostly a guy thing. I think, I have a theory, now bear with me, it's going to get a little off color here, but uh, I think women figure, let the guys have their thing. Let them think that they're doing something special, you know, that they're in control. It's kind of like faking orgasm, you know? <laughs> they're just giving us our turf and make, you know, and of course, we go out there and we cook the burgers, and meanwhile, she's done all the side dishes, <clears throat> you know, set the table, chilled the wine, done all the hard work, and we take the bow. I, I encourage the ladies to uh, have fun out there, because it is fun, and it is a good cooking method. Just about anything you can cook indoors, you can cook outdoors, including desserts, and it tastes better. The flame and the smoke just add wonderful flavors to it, and they're great fun. So I recommend you experiment and have fun out there. And uh, uh, when, you're, uh, when your spouse is uh, late from work, go take the grill. All right, well, well how about a couple more questions and then uh, we'll have some pastrami. And <clears throat> Boiling ribs is a technique that really came from Eastern Europe. Um, the Czechs, the Poles, the Hungarians. When they cook ribs over there, they put it in a pot 
with some cabbage, some potatoes, some carrots, caraway seeds, and they serve it as a stew. And it's a wonderful stew because water is a solvent. It pulls the marrow out of the bones. It makes a really rich, wonderful stew. And you can still find it in um, Europe, Eastern European neighborhoods in Chicago. Uh, Berwyn and stuff, the restaurants, all the Polish restaurants. Um, if you're doing ribs American style, a technique evolving from uh, southern slaves, uh, because the most tender cuts of meat are from the loin. That, that this is that long, slender muscle that runs along the spine. That's the longissimus dorsi. It starts up by your shoulders and runs all the way down to your hips, and that's the loin muscle, and that's the most tender. And master got that muscle, he ate high on the hog, hence the expression. The slaves got the tough muscles, the ribs. And the ribs have a lot of connective tissue, and they're very tough. So boiling it will tenderize it. But this is what happens when you boil it. You get all of the flavor comes out in the liquid. It's a solvent, so you lose flavor. You get tender, but you can almost get it mushy. And as a result, it will fall off the bone. And you get really mushy, fall off the bone ribs. Barbecue experts, barbecue aficionados, barbecue judges like the meat to pull off the bone, but a little texture, a little bite. I like my ribs to have the same texture as my steak. I got teeth still. <clears throat> I, can, I, I like to chew it. I like the, I like the flavor. So I don't, but the problem is, is if you... It's a really handy thing, especially the Eastern Europeans, the Greeks. You got a restaurant, somebody comes in and orders a half a slab of ribs, throw it in boiling water, pull it out, throw it on the grill, cover it with sauce, and you can serve it in 20 minutes. Go to a barbecue joint, you got to cook it for three and a half to five hours, depending on which cut you've got. So you put the ribs on in the morning for lunch, and you can run out. A lot of barbecue restaurants do run out. And that's not a very good business model. It's hard to, you know, deal with that. Um, but you, I get, I, you get, I think, a better flavor uh, meat if you dry roast it, dry air with smoke, not water. We, we have been writing a lot um, on our website about what we call sous vide Q. Uh, sous vide, everybody, is there anybody here who has not heard of sous vide yet? This is the hot thing now, sous vide. If you don't have a sous vide machine now, you'll get one for Christmas. <laughs> They're coming down in price. There's a new one coming on the market from Nomiku, I think, that's going to be under 100 bucks. Most of them are under 200 now. What they are is, is they look like a, um, a, a stick blender, um, kind of like this thing here. Um, you, you, you take your meat, like a steak, we'll say. We'll use steak as an example. Um, you get a steak, and you put it in a plastic bag, and you slip the bag into a pot of water so that the water pressure pushes all the air up. Or you can put it in a vacuum sealer and pull all the air up. But it, basically you want all the air out of the bag and then you seal the bag with a zipper or with a vacuum sealer. So now you've got meat in a, in a vacuum sealed bag and you put this heating element into the water and set it precisely with an app on your phone or a dial on the, on the it's called sous vide machine. Uh, it's a French term. It's been around since the 70s, but the equipment was always expensive, but now it's getting cheap and it's getting app driven. Um, and this thing is really precise. So what temperature do we say our ideal moisture and tenderness is for steak? 130, 135. So you set this baby for 130. 
at 1.30, you can make it safe. You can pasteurize it. It takes hours. You know, these temperatures on the chart, this gets complicated. The temperatures on the chart, USDA says 160, 165 for chicken. That's the seven-second kill rate. And that's the 7D kill rate. In other words, you're killing a lot of microbes almost instantly. But if you're willing to take a slightly lower kill rate, which is still really safe, 60, it's, it's six logs, it's, I don't understand it. But it, it, it's, it's, it's slightly less kill rate. You don't have to cook it as high a temperature. Or you can cook at a low temperature for a long time because it takes a long time to kill the bugs at a low temp. Uh, you should not cook under 130. I know a lot of uh, sous vide machines say you can. Um, I've done my homework on this with the uh, woman who occupies my bed. And uh, 130 is a good number. So don't try, I don't recommend cooking under 130. But a steak at 130, you put it in there and after a few hours, low and slow, you're really tenderizing the meat. You're really softening the connective tissues. You're slowly cooking it, and you can't overcook it. When you're cooking on a grill at 225, in theory, you could heat the meat all the way up to 212. It could go up to the boiling temperature. Yeah. <laughs> Who hasn't? We, we've overcooked meats, haven't we? So if you put it in at 130, the meat will rise to 130 and can't go a penny higher. So it's perfectly cooked. Now you take it out of the bag and what do you got? One butt ugly steak because it's gray and it hasn't been seared. Now you put it on the grill over a scorching hot fire, a couple of minutes on either side or in a cast iron pan, scorching hot, sear the snot out of it and you've got beautiful Maillard reaction and perfectly cooked steak and sous vide Q is the term I've coined for you combining this technique of sous vide with the barbecue and you can do stuff like you can take it out of the sous vide and throw it in a smoker or you can smoke it first and put it in the sous vide you can and it you get really tender really juicy food and these machines uh, my favorite is by a company out of Seattle it's called Joule J-O-U-L-E it's a little white wand really nice got a great app um, really works well, but Nomiku has announced that they're going to have one for under a hundred bucks, um, and they make a good one. So if you haven't got one, watch out for sous vide machines. And if you like to grill, combine it with the grilling and with the smoking. And we ha we're writing about this phon phonetically. You can, yeah. It depends on what you're cooking to. Like, like chicken, yeah. You can pull it out a little under temp. Uh, this is the question: Can you pull it out under temp and sear it? Because chicken. You can cook chicken at 1.30, but it really, the texture is kind of weird. It's hard to get used to. I've had it at 155, and I, I don't mind it. I still like it best in the 155 to 160 range for white meat. But um, again, I don't recommend going under 130 just for a safety sake. But you know, if you're doing a really hot sear in a hot pan, it's not going to raise the core temperature much. It, it, it's not going to have that big an effect on it. I mean, a hot pan or on a hot grill, you're not going to raise it too much. Yeah, it, this is a, a new frontier. And um, Clint, Clint Cantwell, our new lead writer, is... I, I hired this guy in January, and I said, I want you to learn everything you can about this process and teach us. Um, so we're really interested. It's a fun thing to play with. 
um, and you can get really juicy and tender meat. And when you combine it with the grill or the smoker, uh, it can be awesome. The question is, is, do I need to spend a lot of money for meat or can I go with some inexpensive cuts? You know, as with anything when you're cooking, um, a quality usually com comes to the plate. Um, uh, so quality vegetables, quality meats generally are better. But um, good technique can make cheap meats taste pretty good. Um, I mean, one of my favorite steaks is a flank steak. And that's a lot cheaper than a ribeye. And I can cook flank steaks really tender and really, and they're, they're great in sous vide queue, by the way. Uh, on the other hand, I've, I've, done, I've done some very fun tastings where I've bought USDA Choice uh, ribeye, USDA Prime ribeye, Wagyu ribeye, and real Japanese Kobe ribeye. And you know what? I, I prefer USDA Prime. So for me, those really expensive Wagyu and Kobe's are just too much. They're just too intense. They're just too fatty. So I, I, you know, I think it's also a matter of taste. The, the key to low and slow barbecue has always been cheap cuts made good by proper technique. But it, it, I think it really depends. I mean, like I was in France last year and I finally got to taste poulet au bresse, the famous breast chicken. Uh, Brest, the little town that is famous for its chickens, and it's different. It's different. I mean, it's different f even from, you know, um, small pasture-raised Amish chickens and such. So, I, you know, I don't know that there's a set answer for that question. I wish there was. For chicken, here we go into this topic again, but, you know, free range means basically to have a door that's open, and if the chicken wants to go out, it can. But it's scary out there because it's very bright. Um, if, uh, Purdue has committed to doing some, you know, no additives and... Uh, um, I've had pasture-raised, pasture-raised, real pa You know, these terms have just gotten corrupted. I, I, what happens is, is the organic board and these other boards have people on them that decide what is legal for the word organic. And those positions are now occupied by Archer Daniels Midland and uh, <laughs> Purdue. And so they keep watering down the definitions. Um, and so, I mean, a real pastured chicken that walks around, uses its legs, uses its wings, eats bugs, I think tastes better. But when they say pasture it on the label, it can often mean there's a little pen that they, can, that they wander around in. So I don't know. I think, I think what we're gonna find out is that we gotta learn the brand, like Purdue is one brand, but Harris Farms or Bell and Evans is a good brand. Yeah, we're gonna find out, it's like wine. You know, you get a brand, you know, that you trust. Um, and so you're going to find out a wine, a manufacturer, a producer who's an artisan whose brand you trust. And I think that's the way we're going to go with meats. We may see appellation um, uh, of meats, you know, Montana grown versus Iowa grown. It's going to get very interesting in the near future. And it already is. Pricing is a whole nother question. Uh, and pricing is often determined on what the market will bear.
I mean, we know that the pro I mean, we just heard that Amazon bought Whole Foods. And there's some interesting articles I just read that compared overlapping products on Amazon and in Whole Foods, the same products. And they're different. And guess who's more expensive? Yeah, um, so the cost of, the pr of production is usually a small part of the final. Marketing is often a big part of the final. I consulted with a company that made um, uh, barbecue for grocery stores and learned an awful lot about pricing from them. It's just, well, we could spend hours on this whole topic of buy. You know, here's my thoughts, on, and I'll, I'll summarize them real quickly. You will get sicker worrying about your food <laughs> than anything you eat. That we are obsessed with worrying about what we eat. Michael Pollan had it right. Eat what your grandma used to cook. Eat mostly vegetables. Try to get as close to the raw material as possible. Processed. But cooking at home is processing. When you put it in the oven, when you put it in the pan, when you put it on the grill, you're processing it. When you put salt on it, you're processing it. So, I mean, how did processing become so awful? I don't know. Um, we have some um, pastrami. It looks like it's just about ready. Um, and uh, we can stick around and answer questions. Come visit AmazingRibs.com or try the book, and uh, I'll hang out and answer questions until you're exhausted.